Good morning. And happy birthday to those who are getting baptized. You birthed into a new life, right? A new life in Christ. That's where life really begins. Um, I'd like to turn with you to a, sh- a short passage, well, actually a long passage. It's actually three chapters long, but don't worry, we will not be reading the three chapters. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, and I'd like to look at uh, Moses, actually. Exodus chapter 2, you know that Moses grew up a prince of Egypt, and uh, he discovers that he is um, actually an Israelite. And he comes onto the scene in which an Egyptian is beating a Hebrew, right? an Israelite. So let's look at it from there. One day, well, this is verse 11, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And suddenly he begins to realize what he has done and the full gravity of what has taken place the day before. And he was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. We'll stop here for a little bit. So you see, what happens is that Moses, he begins to reconnect with his own people and realizes while he is a a prince in Egypt, he is also an Israelite. And he is one with the people who are slaves and his people are slaves. And he's, he's, he's concerned. And so he sees his role, now that he's in, his, in this position of privilege, as one in which he is to save or to bring justice to his own people. But something takes place in the midst of that that brings him a real deep self-realization of how much more complex and how much more dark the situation is. That it's not just a matter of him bringing light to the, 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 the benighted people or to bring justice to his oppressed people. He realizes something about himself. And you, look, he, and, 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 and you can see this actually happening as the whole thing unravels. And he comes... So what he has done is that he has, he has uh, killed the Egyptian taskmaster who has been bullying or oppressing or beating one of the Israelite slaves. And he sees himself as a person who can bring relief, bring righteousness and justice to a terrible situation, a situation that had been going on for a long time and has been um, unbearable. And so he comes in, and as he comes into to the situations, he does what seems to be the only thing that he could do. He tries to intervene, and then he ends up killing the Egyptian. And by killing the Egyptian, he has committed murder. And something very, very terrible has taken place. He did not expect that his sense of righteousness has turned into murder. And he finds out that he himself, in his own sense of his own goodness and his own uh, desire for good, desire to right wrongs, is himself tainted. He cannot do a good thing without doing something that's mixed in with something evil. And he begins to realize that that is the condition that he has, the condition of human beings, in the sense that we are marbleized with sin in in us. We cannot do any good thing without doing something terrible. 
And this is a good picture of the human condition. Don't you think? This is a good, it's a good picture of that because you see, he comes in and the, the next day, he comes to this group of this, these two people who are Israelites, Hebrews, who are fighting with one another, quarreling with one another, and he tries to intervene and they slam it to him and say, who made you a judge and a prince over us? You're a prince of Egypt maybe, but you're not a prince over us. What made you arrogate to yourself righteousness and judgment? What makes you better than all of us? What puts you on a level of existence, a level of being that is higher than us slaves? And Moses begins to see that actually that's really true, that he is actually in no way better than them, even though he has better intentions. And he sees the, the marbleized darkness that's in him, and he can't separate his goodness from his evil. It reminds me of the heart of darkness. Many of you read, I'm sure you've read uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, where he, this person by the name of Kurtz, he goes into Belgian Congo. It's probably Belgian Congo that is being referred to. He comes to, 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 to relieve the so-called the, the benighted savages and finds that in the midst of what he's seeing, the, the carnage has taken place uh, in Belgian Congo, uh, he is himself stirred up. And there are evil, dark forces that are within him that no matter how missionary he is or missionary-like he is, there's a darkness that's in there. And the book and the, and, the, and the novel actually comes in at a spot in which years later he has himself committed tremendous carnage among the very people that he wanted to help. And by doing so, he has imposed his, his own justice, which is arbitrary, upon them. And so, the famous phrase, he looks into the horror and he says, the horror, the horror. And then he just goes on a rampage because he sees something that's inside him. There's a sense in which we do sometimes come to those places in which we begin to see the, the mixed nature, the, the good that we want somehow has a way of curving back into ourselves and becoming selfish. And no matter what we, can, we, we try to do to sort of separate those two things out, we can't because that's the condition of our disease. It's, so to speak, marbleized. And so you can see how the whole thing sort of unravels. He answers, who made you? And he has to ask that question, right, to himself. Who made me? What am I? What do I, what do I consist of? What have I become? What made me what I am now? That I, in, my, in, my, in the mixture of my goodness and, and good intentions, have actually done a terrible thing to murder someone. Do you mean you kill me? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? So what Hebrew is saying is, is, is this. Everything you touch is radioactive, so to speak. You're going to kill me too, right? You're going to give me your, your, your justice? You're going to give me your, your righteousness? You're going to arrogate towards yourself judgment upon me? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Wow, terrible, isn't it? Devastating. And Moses was afraid. Have you ever come to situations where you suddenly realize, you come to yourself and you realize that that is so devastating that it just brings fear upon you? You know? What have I done? What have I done? I didn't even know I'd done it. And thought, surely the thing is known. And of course, there's this other thing in which he's fearful for his own life, right? When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. And Moses realizes that he doesn't have the guts to stand for whatever he's done. And he runs. The man is smaller than the ideal. And Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And he just gives up. He gives up. I think that happens to many Christians when we realize that the Christianity that we had when we were growing up in junior high or high school, that kind of rah-rah kind of Christianity. When we try to do ministry, we try to do more stuff, and we really come up against our own self-will. We begin to see our own pride, our own ego, and the kind of 
things that we find that in the very best of intentions, the very best of us is tainted. And I wonder whether you've experienced that, as I have, where I realize that everything that I try to do in terms of ministry and all that is tainted my pride, my own sense of self-actualizing motives, all that. And I find that the very best of me is not good. It's not that we realize that we have bad, bad, bad things about ourselves. It's that we realize that the good things that are us are not that good. Ah, that's, that's more devastating to me than to know that I've done something really, really bad. I know there are bad things that I've done, okay? I don't, I don't need anyone to convict me. But to know that the very best that I've done is not that good. Tells me that I can't rise to that level. And there's something, you know, the old English word for it is incurvature, where we are constantly wanting to, to, to be about something, be about God, be about goodness, be about the other person, the true altruism. But there's something about our, the, the sickness of our soul that curves back into ourselves and it's all about ourselves. So, but so much so that we, when we try to live the Christian life, we try to live it, and it's all about us living the Christian life rather than glorify God, God. And so Moses comes to a place where he just gives up. And I wonder whether some of you have actually just decided, I'm just giving up on this thing. And it's not because I give up on the world because the world sucks, but because I give up on myself because I suck. I give up on myself because it can't be done. It can't be done. If it's about me doing living a, a better life, and if religion is not about me getting a better life and, and living a better life, then what is religion all about? And Moses is about to find out that it's all about God wanting to live through, through us, not as an automaton, but in finding our true self. Right? And so he gives up, and I just, as I was praying, as I was preparing for this, I just sensed this picture of a stoppage for some of us. Let me just stop. I'm not, I'm not even going to think about any kind of dream that I have, only any kind of uh, sense that things can be better coming from me. It's just not doable. Christian life is just not doable. I'm just marbleized with, with evil inside or darkness, whatever we call it, sin. Well, let's call it sin. There is a sin factory, Watchman Nee says, inside us that not only wants to do good, but cannot help by very nature of our own very being, our own very identity, you know, that question, who made you, that makes sin happen. We just can't help it. Just can't help it. It's a sin. There's something that is desperately wrong about us. And uh, no amount of current you're good, you're good, you're good. You should have the car that you deserve. You know how advertising is always the thing that you deserve. The loan that you deserve. The car that you deserve. The chocolate that you deserve. The ice cream that you, you deserve. Since when did you know that I deserve all that? Since when am I deserving of anything that deserve? And no amount of that kind of talk will actually erase the sense that there is something of a sin factory that's inside me and I can't help it. I produce sin. And so he goes and he runs away to the, to, uh, the Midian, Midian region. And now we're going to chapter 3. See, that was so quick. We finished chapter 2. Let's go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, we, we find Moses who is in the backside of the desert in the wilderness, and he's keeping flock. He's just completely um, uh, um, anonymous. Reminds me of Lawrence Arabia, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, who actually, after all his escapades, decides that all this is, all this, all this work for king and country and for helping out other, other people it doesn't work because not only is the British, British Empire corrupt, I am corrupt as well. And he goes and he becomes a janitor. Right? He just becomes a janitor and just, I'm just going to mop things. 
just going to mop things. Because at least that will get me, a, uh, get me not thinking about the utter debacle of my own life. Yeah? And so here's Moses, and he's just completely uh, uh, anonymous. He's just like, don't touch me, don't, don't come near me, don't ask me questions, don't get near me, don't talk to me about Egypt, don't talk to me about empire, don't talk to me about good things. I just want to be a, a, a fly on the wall, a gnat on the floor, and just live my existence. Yeah? Chapter 3. Verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And I just like to keep that picture there. The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. This is actually the picture that God was going to give Moses and all the rest of us about the kind of life that we have on fire but not consumed. We're afraid that God will consume us, right? Ouch, pain, it's painful. No, God's saying, this is what I have for you. You'll be consumed. That, 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 that all the incurviture, that all this self-obsession self, uh, will be consumed. That part of the inside of you will be consumed and you'll be on fire. And so that as a bush, you'll be, that you'll be just like that. That's a, kind of a tip-off of what the rest of the Bible is all about. Us being bushes of fire, not consumed. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I shall sure, have surely seen the affliction of my people. Notice how many times the word I is used, which, is mean, which means that God is speaking about himself. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard, about, heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the, the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? It's really funny. When you've been, you've been wounded, you cannot help thinking of that wound. His, Moses' eye has so wounded that it, that wound is throbbing. And God is talking about himself when he says I. Doesn't make sense? He's talking about his own intentions. He's not really talking about Moses. Moses cannot help thinking about himself. And he says, who am I? Who am I that I should do this? Who am I, let me finish the sentence, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And Moses has this big question in his heart. The question that many of us who have been baptized and who are going to be baptized, can they have it in our hearts? It's like, who am I? When I look at the mixture, the marbleized mixture of good and bad and corruptibility that's in me, who am I? that I should think that I can actually be a blessing to other people or be a Christ Christian. I'm sure many of you have thought, thought of that. Who am I? We struggle with our lack of identity and, uh, and trying to find a claw, claw upon things so that we, uh, we can fix our identity on something good that we can do or something famous that we are in, There's something that, 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 that we like to do or something that people praise us. Or we claw for, for, for clues of our identity. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And God's saying, I'm going to do this, and we can't help saying, who am I? God may be saying, I wasn't actually talking about you. I'm talking about something very serious, more serious than you. <laughs> I'm talking about the oppression of my people, Israel, that are in Egypt, and what I'm going to do. But you see, when you've been hurt, when you've been wounded, when your ego has been crushed, when you have found that things have taken place in your life to make you think that there is no hope, for anything meaningful or anything redemptive or anything of a dream, we actually just feel that 
the I in, the mid, in this whole equation is completely rotted. It's unable. And so Moses can't help thinking, I know, I tried that before. I tried to do, just, to, 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 do, to do justice to my people. But look what happened. I actually murdered somebody. And not only that, did I get murdered. I couldn't even stand for the action that I've taken. I ran away. I don't have it inside me to make a stand for anything good. I can like good, but I can't make a stand for it because I'm, I'm not strong enough to be that good. And so Moses completely is confronted by God. And, uh, or rather, in, in meeting God, he's confronted by his own um, failures. And God says something that's wonderful. It's like sublime. You know, he says, Moses says to God, who am I? And then God says to him, verse 12, he says, I will be with you. So Moses says, no, I said, I'm not talking about me. Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. Moses says, no, who am I? God says, I will be with you. That's who you are. You are not you. It's not about you. You are only, I will be with you. Isn't that amazing? What God says is, you can put all of yourself to and all your mistakes and all your sins and all your terrible debacles to the side, and know this, that in me, as a burning bush, I burn all that, so that who am I? Who are you? You are, I will be with you. I love it. Because it means that no matter how bad I've been, no matter how dark my past is, no matter how much I'm trying to hide things from people, God says, you know who you are? You are, I will be with you. And the word with that's used is, 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 a, is a very interesting Hebrew word, which is with, with love, with warmth, with like, I will never let you go. I will never let you down. You know the name God, for God, I am, is a, is a, is a Hebrew phrase, what they call a tetragrammaton which really means, I will never forsake you. I'll always be with you. That is the name of God. That is what God is about. That is His agenda. He creates the whole cosmos in which most of the stuff seems superfluous, but it's all necessary for this one little dot of an existence of, of, of a planet called Earth. And everything's necessary. Cosmologists realize that this whole seeming waste of, of stuff that, is, that makes up the cosmos is absolutely necessary for the existence of this little dot of people in the, in, in the planet. God is about you. I can't, I, can't, I can't fathom it. I can't take it. It makes me shake. It makes me tremble. Just the fact that God is for me that much. Oh boy. I will be with you. And that's what God says. Moses has one last question, and I have one last point. It's in chapter 4. See how we finished chapter 3, and now we are now in chapter 4. And Moses said, you know, because God had said, I want you to go down, and I have a, have a mission for you. Tell them the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has met with me, and I'm going to set you free. I'm going to take you out. You're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that I can go three days walk into the wilderness so that I can worship him. Remember, the promised land was not the, not the point about being set free from Egypt. It was worshiping God and seeing the manifest presence of God and being filled with the presence of God, you know, and being radiant with him. And then the promised land comes along. It's an outflow of the, 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 the worship of God in Sinai in the middle of the three, just three months, three, three days walk out of Egypt. Chapter 4. And Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. So you see, Moses still thinking about himself, right? For good reason, right? His last, his last big experience was an utter failure. And so he's, he's smarting from it. He's wounded from that. They would not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said, 
what is that you have in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it to the ground. And he threw it to the ground. And the staff is all the experience that Moses has had taking care of sheep, right? The staff is identified with you. Most shepherds, when they have staff, they have these notches that signify the number of wolves or wild animals they have killed to save the sheep, right? So the the staff is, is is a measure of your worth, your experience, who you are. In some ways, the staff is like your alter ego. It's like, it's me. It's a summary of my life. And, 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 and Moses says, the summary of my, li- my life is such that they will not believe me. I don't have cred with them. And most of us, our, our issue is trying to find cred, right? Credibility with people. We are always looking at ourselves. Yeah, do I, am I credible? Am I credible? Is my stuff good? So many of us like put flowers on the stuff, add a few notches, exaggerate our achievements a little bit more. Oh, you're very impressive. Yeah, I know, but half of it is not really true. Yeah, <laughs> because I'm trying to build cred, right? I'm trying to build uh, credibility with, with, with my friends and with the people that I'm applying for a job for and all that. So here it is. And, 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 and God is saying, you're going to talk to my people and you're going to talk to Pharaoh and you're going to say, God has sent me. I met, met with God. And Moses looks at his cred. How will they know? And God says, what do you have in your hand? He says, my, my staff. And he said, you have to throw it down. Because you cannot depend upon that for credibility. You are not that. You are not the sum total of your experiences. You are not everything that you've experienced. Your failures and your success. Successes are not who you are. And you have to throw it down. And that's something that those who are going through the waters of baptism have experienced. Where you found that you came to an end of yourself and you realized that everything that you were, good, bad, and indifferent, had to be thrown down. Because you couldn't keep totaling and balancing up the, the equation, or, or, or rather the ledger between your good and your bad and all that, and it just comes to nothing. And what God says is this, I give you a name, a new name, but it's not based upon your past or what you've done. You throw it down. And as he threw it down, uh, we won't have time to actually read it all, but he threw it down and it got turned into a, a snake. And when he got turned into a snake, Moses ran away from it. I want nothing to do with it. I don't want anything to do with my experience. I do not want anything to do with my past. And I, and I know there's, there's a snake there. And some of you may be feeling that. Some of you may be feeling that there is that thing. And you don't want to be identified with it because it's too painful. Failures in Christian life. Failures that you've seen it in others. The horror, the horror. And God said, when, this, when the serpent was on the, on the ground, he says, now pick it up by the tail. You never pick up a snake. If you're going to pick up a snake, for goodness sake, just don't pick it up by the tail. You're going to pick it up by anyone, anything else. Just don't pick it up by the, by the tail because that would be the most dangerous thing. And he said, pick it up from the most dangerous thing. Pick it up. And Moses picked it up. And he got turned into a staff. And then he said, God said to him, so that they may believe. That's all he said. So that they may believe. You know, God has given to us a new staff, a new nature. When you throw it down, the sting of it, the sting of our own human um, incurvature gets revealed. And sometimes when that happens, we want to just give up. We just know that we can't do it. But God says, no, no matter what you are ashamed of, you pick it up because I made you new. Amen? You died. I, that's what Jesus did on the cross. The serpent is always seen in the wilderness where when uh, the children of Israel were told, look up at the serpent and you'll be healed. Jesus said, as the Son of Man is lifted up, up above the, the, the earth, he will draw all people unto him and he will bring healing to all of us. You look to the serpent, you look to the Lord, 
and he becomes the banner that heals. Amen? The last thing that's in there is that God said, put your hand in your, in your, in your, in your waist, in your bosom. He put his hand in there, take it out. And immediately he saw that it was leprous, full of leprosy. Then he said, put it back in. And took it out and he was healed. And that's also another picture of our healing that God gives to us. Not because we, we reform or we did anything better, but because of the fact that he has caused you to die to yourself. He has killed the sin factory. He has broken the sin factory only through what Christ has done. Only a God could do that for you and me. We couldn't do it for ourselves. Our mother couldn't do it for us. Our grandmother couldn't do it for us. No matter how holy, no matter how prayerful they are, they couldn't do it for us. No prophet could do it for, for us. No pastor could do it. And he took it out and he was healed. Just recently, I think I've shared here before, there was a woman who had come for the conference that I was speaking at in Catalina Island. And, um, and during the, the course of the, the, the first two days of the conference, she, she was of great concern to her friends in, from her school. And because she had tried to commit suicide many times. And so she cut her wrists. And not that long ago, about nine months before, she had cut her wrist again. And you could see that on her wrist there were many scars. But nine months since, God had touched her and she had found God to be her comfort. And that she was made new by God. But every time she saw those scars on her, on her wrist, she would say, am I really new? And so on the Saturday night, the Lord was speaking and was speaking about the fact that He had made all things new and that we have died with Christ. When we, when we are buried in the waters of baptism, we are completely immersed. Your old life is immersed in that. When you rise up, you rise up with Christ. Your old life does not rise up again. When you are hidden in Christ, when you die with Christ, what it is, is it's like this sheet of paper. It goes into to the book and it is hidden. Amen? You can't find it. But because it is in the book, it goes wherever the book goes. If the book goes down, it goes down. If the book rises up, it, go, it rises up. It rises up not in so far as it is, it is, a, it is a, as a flying sheet. It rises up in so far as it is in the book. Amen? To be in Christ means to lose your life in Him and say, Lord, I'm not living for myself anymore. You have, by, by your victory on the cross, broken the sin factory, broken that, that proclivity to sin, and I'm now nothing. I'm nothing. I'm hidden in you. Amen? When Christ went to the grave, you went with Him, and He broke the power of sin. He broke it. He didn't do you bad. He broke that power of sin in you. Amen? And when he broke it, he, 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 he overcame the last enemy's death. Overcame death and rose from the dead. When he rose, insofar as you are in him, you rose with him. Now sometimes, of course, we want to show ourselves. I've noticed that America is one of those places where people want to be known, where they want to be shown. I could never, could never understand it. When I came to Christ, I just wanted to be hidden. I was so ashamed of myself. Why do people want to be seen? I don't want to be seen. Never can understand that. But if you're hidden with Christ, when He rose from the dead, you rose, rose with Him. Amen? Let's pray. We recognize that as we Celebrate with our baptism candidates, seven of them. Perfect number, I suppose. We celebrate the fact that a miracle has taken place in their life, whether they feel it or not, and that their old life died. They couldn't kill it. 
we couldn't overcome it in ourselves, but you did, Lord. We thank you for them. We thank you that you have made them new, that old things have passed away, the new, behold, the new has come. And we thank you that for, even as we vicariously watch them share and testify, we too can put ourselves in their shoes and glorify you for all that you have done in our lives. If there's anyone who wants to say, yes, Lord, I, I, I know I've given up on, on life. I've given up, given up on any good that I can do. I'm embarrassed by myself. I want to be hidden. And I want you to be revealed in me. Give me a new life. You invite him to not only come into your heart, but you enter into the book like the fly, the, like the, the fly leaf, the page. Hidden now in Christ. Dead to myself and alive in you. Lord, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, that was quite difficult trying to make it a, as short a sermon as I could. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but it is now time to hear the real story. There are seven sitting in the front who are about to be baptized. This is a great day. And we have pri- I've been privileged to be with them and to walk with them on a little bit of a journey that has brought them to this place where they want to say, I am dead to myself. I'm alive with Christ. And so I'm going to invite them to share with you why they want to be baptized, but especially how they came to Christ and what Christ did in their lives. So I don't know who's going to start first. Myra is going to start first. So let's welcome Myra. Good morning, everyone. Today, I want to express my identification with Christ's death and resurrection. My old self and my sins were crucified with him, with Christ, through the waters of death. And now, as a follower of Christ, I have risen with him in the newness of life. Amen. When the spirit of Christ came upon me, I was changed. He filled me with my heart with compassion, wisdom, knowledge, piety, counsel, and fortitude. And I experienced this every day of my life. In 2011, when I was having excruciating pain on my neck, and shoulders due to a degenerative disease. I was unable to work and I was off for six months. And during this time, the Holy Spirit taught me how to pray. He guided me to pray for God's will and plan and not my own. Knowing this, I confronted my own suffering with the Lord asking, how can I fulfill your will? If I am having pain in my neck and shoulders, how can I carry those babies? How can I feed them? Although I was unsure of what to do, I told the Lord to use my arms and hands and my entire being as a vehicle of his love, mercy, healing, and compassion. I surrendered myself to him. And through my surrendering, my heart to be used And through surrendering my heart to be used for his own will, the Lord healed me. He healed me in his own time, and through his miracles, I was able to go back to work to fulfill his will. When I was doing this testimony, there is this um, word of God that he wanted me to share with everybody today. And I've been... I've had this since 20, uh, March 13, 2022. And 
I kept coming back to it. So it's actually at the end of my testimony because I said, okay, Lord. And some of it, I handwritten it. And the, 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 the word is Matthew 28, verse 19. And it kind of ties what uh, the sermon today by, doc, uh, by um, Pastor Ko. And it says, go therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I stopped right there because God gave me 28 verse 19. And I, I was asking myself, Lord, how can I do that? I'm not even a pastor. How can I? And I, I, don't, I don't understand the Bible sometimes. And, and then I stand up. It's like, okay, what is it, Lord? And then I went on and read it to, until verse 20. And it says, teach them everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. So I was like, wow, Lord, yeah. And then I was hearing Pastor Ko. I was like, oh, my gosh, look at Cindy. Look at this. So anyway, to, um, to let it sum up, I want us to pray. Let us pray. Lord, give us new life for this, for your own glory. Let your spirit bind with our spirit so that your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Myra. Now I'm assuming that I'm calling upon Carolyn to come and share. All right, Carolyn. Let's give a big hand, big hand. I'm a very, very nervous public speaker, so I'm just going to speak from my heart. Um, I was very troubled growing up. I had a lot of problems. I struggled with a lot of codependency, and I struggled with alcohol for a really long time, and I lost a lot of hope with everything, especially God, and I found myself very angry. I grew up Catholic, and I was set all the guidelines of what God was and what he represented, but I was never taught a relationship with God, and for many years throughout my youth, I drifted so far into very, very dark and very lonely places. And I thought to myself, how could God love me if I am like this? And it took me a really, really long time to come to a place where I would have never been able to get through those deeply, deeply dark times had God not been by my side and carried me. And... I'm ready to move on to this new life and to live through Christ and to forget the past and the things that I have done and to live the best that I can because he was with me this, this whole entire time he guided me. And that's what I got. And I am so, so grateful for Mary because she has been such a beacon of light in my life. I came here five years ago to get sober and to change my life. And if it weren't for God, I would have never been able to maintain such a straight and narrow path. And I, am, I can't even express the gratitude I feel to all of you who have welcomed me with open arms because this is God. And this is what the world truly needs in order for us to be okay again, and I believe, and I give my heart and soul, and I'm incredibly grateful for everything God has done for me. Thank you. Thank you. And we shall now invite Isaac to come and share. Hello. Uh, I let my I let God into my heart at the age of eight, but I didn't really get baptized until this point because I was eight, so I didn't really know what being baptized meant. Um, during elementary school, um, I had allergies, a lot of allergies, so I had to bring my own food to school. Right. So, and the people there were not very nice, right? So they made fun of me, they made jokes about me, about my food allergies. 
Um, I was pulled out of school for fourth grade all the way up to my freshman year in high school um, for homeschooling. Um, today, this was my first year back, and going into it, um, I felt nervous at, because I didn't know if the same thing in like elementary school would repeat, and I would have no friends, and I would be made fun of throughout the entire school year. Um, but I feel like God really blessed me through my freshman year because that did not happen, and I was not made fun of for my allergies, and I made friends along the way. So I thank God for blessing me with great classmates, friends, um, good teachers, and it gave me a reason for me to be baptized and to follow him. Thank you. That's huge. Those of you who've gone through middle school and high school, you know how big, how big that is, right? All right, let's invite Sarah, the youngest one of our, our team. I have been going to church all my life, and my parents started sharing the Bible. Now, me and my mom read the Bible every night so I can learn more about the Bible. When I lived in my house in England, me and my mom were taking a walk by the way. My mom was talking to me about the gospel. Then my mom said, do you want to give your life to Jesus? And I said, yes. Yeah. So my mom prayed with me. Now living in America, Everyone has helped me feel closer to God. I, since I have been going to BCS, I feel like in my children's ministry class, I have, felt, I, I have learned a lot and felt closer to Jesus than I have before. Then my parents said there was a baptism class, so I went and learned that baptism means declaring that Jesus is the most important person in my life and that I want to follow Jesus. This is why... I want to be baptized today because I want to be closer with Jesus Christ and that, I, and that my bond with God will be strong and that it will be forever. Well done. Okay. All right. And now we will invite Sonia Colstead to come and share. I had to resist the temptation of giving her more time because I know she had a lot to say. <laughs> I did. I did want to note that three minutes is ridiculously <laughs> short. Um, just putting that on the record. Uh, hi. Um, I had a lot to say, but you really actually covered most of it, so thank you. Um, but uh, So I had to wear this shirt today. It's very symbolic. Hold on, let me overthink this, because it's basically what I've been doing about today. And this morning I um, was talking to my daughter, and I said, I'm a little nervous about today. I don't know what I'm going to say. And I need to say, like, what Jesus has done for me. And she's like, he gave you a good night of sleep. I was like, you're right, he did. I actually slept really well last night. And it just reminded me to wear this shirt of, I overthink everything. Um... I became a Christian when I was very young. I did the classic. Well, maybe not other people did this, but I remember vividly saying, Lord, please come into my heart. 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 Like, he didn't hear it. I don't know what I was thinking, but I think that's very indicative of my walk with God. It's been, um, I think you said it best. I'm going to give you my life, Lord, but just in case you forget about this, I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to this part um, because I like control, and um, which is one of the reasons why I am up here in my early 40s so late in life because letting go of control is really hard for me, and it's really scary, but... 
through the grace of God, I have experienced that having a Holy Spirit in my life is more than just reading the Bible and talking to God, but it's listening to him in experience in his presence and being used by him to help others in this way that is just beautiful and um, more life-giving than anything else. Um, it's not about me. And that's kind of hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> because um, I didn't think I was egotistical, but I guess I am. <laughs> um, because in the end, I'm going to let everyone down in some way. And I'm sorry. But I am going to go into those waters today a mess. And um, I'm going to come out a mess. But um, I want to put my whole mess in him. And um, because I want to see what he does with it. Because I've been trying. And I need something more than me. So, um, yeah, I'm finally ready to just, I'm finally ready to do this, guys. Thank you. And I just pray for all of you guys to have that experience, that experience with, with Christ. That's not just about reading the Bible and saying some words, but I want you to be able to hear from him. I just pray that for you because that is when the game changes. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. All right. Ellie. Hello, my name is Eliana. My parents still go to this church, and they encouraged me to do my devotion and pray to God each morning. I loved, attended, I loved attending church because my mom made it super fun to learn about this random dude named Jesus who saved people's lives and was the son of God who created the whole entire earth. My dad helped me to try to dig deeper into the scriptures I give others and what others give me directly. The, the transition between public school and homeschooling was a little disorientating. I could sleep in a little, I could eat whenever I wanted, except one dinner, and I could eat a little, and I could learn more. My parents have taught me as I have taught them. <laughs> when the picture of baptism was set in front of me, it was weird. Like, why do we have this public ritual thing that's like a proclamation of our faith to everyone when Jesus was humble and tried to stay low but rise high? If God was humble and doesn't want to be a sore thumb that walked around like my dad, and baptism is all, like, public, why do we do it? So I asked Michael Coe and my dad about it. They explained it as, people will hold you accountable to your faith and will help you alongside Jesus. And you will have people more open to giving you with help with godly things. In a book that I'm reading for school, it's called The King Will Make a Way by Lee Giles. The main character, Gabe, this young teenager, tries to encourage his family to stay strong while the antagonist tries to wipe out every memory of the king. As Gabe is going through these challenges, as others are doubting, the king always gives him a picture or a dream that they can, that Gabe can count on so that he has the courage to say to others, the king will make a way. Because every single time that the antagonist tries to delete everything, Gabe always says the king will make a way. And he does. I know that Mary Alvarado says I'm such a godly woman, but sometimes I just forget. 
Sometimes I forget that I am enough to go to God and ask for a small plea. Sometimes I forget that he's always near for me, there for me. Sometimes I forget that I love myself as I am. Sometimes I forget that he'll be there when I feel like I'm doing something wrong and it's me, not them. I want the assurance, well, sometimes I forget, yeah. I want the assurance in the back of my head that I can count on him when I feel like that I'm a bad daughter. I want my brain to say, God's got you. I want the itch on the back of my head saying, the king will make a way. Bye, Lee Giles. Thank you, Ali. And finally... Last but by no means least, Shante Griffin. Let's welcome her. All right. Amen. Everyone. All right. Yes. Good morning. Indeed. Okay. So about six weeks ago, I was chilling in my cabin in the country. And I thought, I want to get rebaptized. And I was sitting with that thought, and I'm like, do people do that? Like, I thought, you know, once you get baptized, you are baptized. But then I was like, okay, so I just kind of forgot about it. And then about two weeks later, I was on daily prayer, and I heard them saying they were going to have baptisms. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And then Mary is like, if you've only been baptized once, you can get baptized again. And I'm like, yes, I can. And so I was baptized when I was a teenager about 30 years ago. So that tells you around how old I am. And my life with God, even as a teenager, just started becoming so rich. Um, I learned how to hear the voice of God and how to obey, even when I didn't want to. Um, I learned that God's ways are better than our ways. Um, And so two years ago, two, three, two years ago, when God led me to the country, y'all, the country, away from everyone and my family. And I'm like, why am I here? Well, to write a book, but really, why am I here? Um, I began to see God do such a deep, deep, deeper work in my life. And I would be like, literally on the brink of like, how am I going to make it, Lord? Like, I'm an artist, and I don't have a steady paycheck. So I'd be like, I've, I've used all the funds, Lord. All the funds are used. And I would pray, and God would say, I want you to prosper as your soul prospers. And I would feel faith rise as I prayed. And then I would go to the mailbox, and there would be a check. And I'd be like, oh, my goodness, I can eat for the next three months, you know. And it was just miracle after miracle after miracle. And then, y'all, there was death. And then one day, it was like the rug got pulled out from under me, and I fell to the ground, and my my head hit the ground, and I started hemorrhaging. And it was like death all around me. And I don't know if you've ever had something traumatic happen to you where you're you lose your orientation and you try to pray and it's like darkness and all you know to do is to like call on Jesus and put worship music on and you can't even pray. You're just like literally just trying to like make it from day to day. And that's what happened. And as I prayed, I just heard God say, I am the resurrection and the life and I'm going to bring resurrection. And I'm like, how could you possibly bring resurrection? Like it's not possible. And so I just would pray, like every day I would wake up and it would be like a cloud of darkness. Like every single morning I would wake up. I couldn't eat. I had to force feed myself food so I could have energy to write my book. And I would like try to pray and it would take like two hours, an hour and a half before I felt the light of God come into my soul. And then I'd be like, okay. And then I'd make it through the day. And then the next morning I'd wake up and the cloud was like there again. I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) When is this going to go away? And it took months, and it took months. And some days I just, I cried, and I didn't even pray very much other than, like, Jesus, help me. Like, that's all I can do today. I don't have anything, Lord. And so I want to get baptized again because I am saying that I, once again, I'm saying yes to the death and the resurrection. 
right? I am saying, God, you led me to this death, (laughs) and you're going to walk me through this death, and I believe that death with you is better than not dying without you, right? I believe that any death I could experience with you in my life is better, better, right, than all the joy and happiness I can experience outside of your presence. So that is it. I'm saying yes. It's like my recommitment. This is to another 30 plus years, and I'm happy to be with you all today. So that's it. That is so amazing. Life flowing, right? This is the divine life. This is supernatural life actually flowing through each one.